You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where I really want to express the same love that Eric Idle displayed for the Chinese. The world today seems absolutely crackers. With nuclear bombs to blow us all sky high. There's fools and idiots sitting on the tree. It's depressing and it's senseless and that's why I like Chinese I like Chinese They only come up to your knees Yet they're always friendly and they're ready to please Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. My name's Sean Ingle, and what I'm doing here is covering the Green Lantern comics, specifically the ones that came out in the 90s and 2000s, starting with cover date June 1990 and ending with cover date November 2004. You'd think I'd know that from doing this for almost two years now. And putting a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. This time out, it's Kyle Rayner and Zhang Li as we continue our look at the Green Lantern Elseworlds, well, kind of Elseworlds story, Dragon Lord. After all the events of uh, Zhang Li effectively finding out that he was worthy to use his ring, he has to go one more step to make sure that he's worthy to use his ring, as he decides to basically play Tony Jaw and the Protector and beat all of the ass humanly possible. So it's a pretty fun story, and we get the resolution that I figured we would with, well, you'll just have to wait to find out. Plus, we'll also be taking a look at the Green Lantern book. This time out, it's Green Lantern number 142, which is part two of the House of on Fire storyline. Now, it's not a written-for-the-trade story, but it does advance the idea of Kyle having a bit more power with the ring than previous Lanterns would. If you remember last issue, Kyle was pretty much burnt to a crisp, at least on his backside, well, minus his butt, and now he's completely healed himself. How is he able to do that? Is it the ring? Is it something else? Who knows? Plus, we get a pretty good showing with Jenny as Green Lantern, as she's able to take on these fire baddies all by themselves. And, as they're fire baddies, you know there has to be someone behind him. Who do you think it could be? Yep, you probably guessed it. But we're going to be covering that, as well as your emails, after I get done playing some wonderful promos for some wonderful podcasts that you all should be listening to. Probably some from the Two True Freaks website. So, after I get to the promos and the emails, we'll get started in our coverage of Green Lantern number 142. I like Chinese. I like Chinese. I like their tiny little trees. Their Zen, their ping pong, their yin and yangies. I like Chinese. Mr. Scott, shall we give the Enterprise a proper shakedown? I would say it's time for that, sir. I... Before this drama unfolds, we give welcome to the ones named Kirk and Spock. You! What planet is this? Which one of you is the captain? Violate the treaty, Captain. 
Someone is stealing the Enterprise. What are you scratching at? Humans make illogical decisions. Distract sequence completed and engaged. No! Yes, I found the spot. I'm fucking the spot to understand. Starfleet, do you read? This is the Enterprise. We are under attack. Fire in the sky. Star Trek Monthly Monday, covering every episode of the classic original TV series in randomly selected order on the second Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.com. Bradley, a name that could be both a first name or a last name. Ingle, what the is an Ingle? Tangent, a phenomenon that occurs multiple times on every podcast ever. I'm waking up in Cheeto dust My belly's covered with pizza crust I'm using my inhaler now I'm out of shape, fanning up I'm sipping coke from a solo cup Donut crumbs are upon my lips Whoa, Lines, the DC Comics Tangent Universe podcast. Find it bi-weekly on iTunes or at greatcrypton.com. In the Tangent Universe, the Atom looks like Superman and the Flash is a teenage girl in a skin-tight outfit. And we are back. And I would like to give a special, special shout-out to Mr. Charlie Niemeyer for coming up with that incredible joke promo of the Tangent podcast. Um, a couple of weeks ago... Uh, Michael decided on his on Great Krypton to release some of the things that uh, we were doing. Well, that that he had called up in between us moving from the first wave of the Tangent podcast to the second wave. So he posted some really interesting articles about dealing with the uh, title designs of the covers of the issues, and he also gave us this wonderful promo that Charlie Niemeyer made up for us using the parody song that Weird Al Yankovic did of Radioactive called Inactive off his album Mandatory Fun, which, by the way, you can go purchase at Amazon.com via the link at TutorFreaks.com. It's an awesome album, definitely worth listening to. But Charlie, thanks for making that promo. That was just a heck of a lot of fun. And yes, the uh, Tandit universe could easily be summed up as Superman is the, or the Atom is Superman, and uh, the Flash is a girl in a skin-tight outfit. So I love that. But thanks again, Charlie. I said thanks three times anyway, but it 
you're, it's completely deserved. But anywho, let's go ahead and move on to some emails. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and no episode of Just One of the Guys would be an episode of Just One of the Guys if it didn't have an email from my good friend to the Great White North, Mr. Scott Davis. Scott writes in this time with the title Green Lantern vs. Aliens. He starts out saying, Hi, Sean. Overall, I really enjoyed these series. It was an excellent story, and the art by Rick Leonardi was absolutely fantastic throughout all four issues. I have a few comments that I'd like to pass along your way. On the first issue, this was a great setup for the series. I literally blew through Tim Horton's coffee out my nose when Hal put the aliens on Mogo, though. WTF was he thinking. Do you think Ron Mars is poking fun at Hal by doing this, showing how ridiculous Hal could be? I like how future Mogo was in rough shape at the end of the issue when the ship was crash landing. I'm not certain if Mars was trying to poke fun at Hal, but I do think that that they were showing that it was a different attitude, that there was a different time. How how was governed by the Guardians, and a lot of times the Guardians would make him do things that he really didn't know whether he was in the right or not. So he thought he was making the best choice by not destroying the aliens and putting them on Mogo, where essentially, well, Mogo's a Green Lantern. What's going to happen? I mean, nothing bad could come from the fact that, you know, they put these strange acid blood spewing aliens on you know, a Green Lantern planet. There's no chance that someone's going to go crazy and wreck the Green Lantern Corps. That's not going to happen. Getting back to the email, he says, Green Lantern vs. Aliens number 2, another great issue. The cover was amazing, and it was nice to see former Green Lanterns in this issue. But who is Madonna? Well... She's the material girl. Don't you know that? No. Oh, you're talking about the one in the issue. I have no idea she was made up, but yeah, Madonna. There you go. On page five, he says, Kyle mentions that he's been to Mogo before, but I couldn't remember where he was either. I think we addressed that. I'm trying to remember one of the people who emailed in uh, addressed that earlier. One second. Yeah, I checked my email, and I think it was Ben Perlman who mentioned that this was sort of an out-of-continuity thing, and it was it was referenced in other it was referenced like in online that Kyle had mentioned he'd gone to Mogo prior to actually meeting him. But yeah, this is just one of those things where this being out of continuity means that they can play fast and loose with the facts in the story. Scott continues saying, I looked up Mogo's appearances in the Mars run and found that he's in issue 87. This was the issue where Kyle teams up with the Martian Manhunter to prevent an alien race from using Earth to implant its DNA because their race was dying. And instead, Kyle takes in the Mogo to allow the alien DNA to spread there. It's kind of similar to what Hal did to the aliens, actually. And yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe that's the initial meeting between Kyle and Mogo, even though he didn't really meet Mogo there either. So, yeah. But comics. Green Lantern vs. Aliens number three says, I can't get uh, I can't get enough about about try that again. I can't get enough about the great art, especially the walls on page one, when Kyle, Crow, and Salak are looking down the hole. Yeah, the Leonardi's art, especially depicting the sort of alien feel of it, was superb in that story. Is it me or does Kyle look very feminine when Crow is holding him on page six? I agree, Kyle definitely has a douchey haircut. Yeah, that was that was Hero's uh, mention as well. Really, Kyle smells Crow while she's teaching him how to shoot a gun? Well, <laughs> wouldn't you? Uh, 
I mean, not like, you know, go sniff her armpit or anything, but, you know, maybe. I thought Hal was the only pervert of the Green Lantern Corps. Yeah, he, well, but, yeah, okay. You guys were hilarious talking about how she probably smells pretty rank. There are a few splash pages of the aliens this year, which which are amazing. Yep, like I said, Leonardi did a great job at depicting the aliens in these books. Then it goes to Green Lan- Lantern vs. Aliens number 4. I was honestly completely surprised. I didn't expect Crow to be a robot at all. At least Kyle was able to get a good, quick kiss on page 6 before she goes on her suicidal mission. Despite all the good-looking girlfriends Kyle has had in the past, he sure has bad luck with them dying shortly after a relationship. You know, that is kind of interesting. We get, we get of course, Alex, and then we get the uh, Green Lantern. Oh, not Merida. I can't remember the... Aranda, I think, was her name in that uh, issue 56, I think it was, that he met. And then, you know, he hasn't had good luck with Donna Troy. Hopefully Jenny's not going to die. But yeah, after this, just kind of relationship with this Kurt person, she dies as well. So there you go. On page nine, is it me or does it take forever for Kyle to grab the ring right in front of him? It's, it's called dramatic tension. They do that in comics, I guess. There are about five panels where Kyle can reach down and pick it up, but instead he watches the facehugger alien hatch and then jump on his face. I agree with you, I thought it was a strange ending. I guess this series is kind of like an Elseworlds tale, so I'm not taking the deaths of Salak and Brick very seriously. I'm a bit surprised that Kyle had decided to kill all the aliens, but I like how it distinguishes the difference between Hal and Kyle in the same situation. I like how you refer to it as fumigating a house of insects. The last page, with Hal being remembered in silhouette, was hilarious. Overall, this was a great series, and I really enjoyed reading it. Have a great week, Scott. Well, thanks, Scott. I'm glad you enjoyed the Green Lantern vs. Alien story. I thought they were pretty good myself. Um, I remember, like I said during the time, reading the Batman and the Superman Aliens book, and I thought those were really good as well, and I just never got a chance to pick up until recently the Green Lantern vs. Aliens one, and I, I really enjoyed covering them, so I'm glad that you had a good time listening to me talk about them as well. But we've got another letter to read. This one is from Hugo Rivera, and I think he's the first time uh, is the first time he's written in the show. I know I've heard uh, Hugo on other shows, and I've seen him on Facebook. Thanks for writing in, Hugo. He writes about episode number 135. He says, Hello, Sean. Greetings from sunny Southern California. Uh, it's getting cold here in Oklahoma, so sunny California would be nice. Except for, I guess, the drought. That's not fun. He says, I'm a big fan of the show and a member of the silent majority who listens but rarely comments. Well, I I hope there's some sort of majority out there. It'd be nice to know that there are more than, like, six people who listen to the show. So thank you, thank you, Hugo, for, for writing in and letting me know that there's possibly a silent majority listening to the show. He says, I love the last episode, and I loved your guest host, Shag. Oh, Shag's always great coming on the show. He he always enhances the show. And I'm contractually obligated to say that because he's paid me. He does remind me a little of myself since I really got into comics big time in the early 90s. And the three characters that I will always follow are Kyle Rayner, Tim Drake, and Wally West. You know, I'm getting... I'm getting a similar feel from a lot of people my age that who were especially DC fans that these were the characters that really that really they latched onto at this time. And I think that's why the 90s era for a lot of DC fans my age specifically these characters of Tim Drake, Wally West and Kyle Rayner 
have such an impact on them because they were those characters that were carrying on the mantles of these heroes and taking them in new directions and expanding on the characters. And I, again, I've said that I understand what they're trying to do in the new 52, but this time in the nineties with these characters really made DC have a unique feel that was, that was distinctly different from what they'd been doing prior to that. And, what I think they're doing currently. So I'm glad to know that there are more people out there than just me and Shag and a few others that enjoy this era of comics. Continuing on, he goes, yes, even through their new 52 personas, he liked those characters. I have every issue Kyle and Tim appeared in, and my first Wally West issue was Flash number 50. Thank you for doing what you're doing for Kyle. And Guy. Well, <laughs> Guy, unfortunately, is now kind of sidelined, which is sad to me, but there you go. He says, keep up the good work and I'll be listening. Hugo Rivera, and it was sent from his iPhone. So thank you for typing that up for your iPhone. That's always fun. Hopefully you use Siri. That that helps. You know, just the voice to text thing. That works a lot. But thanks, Hugo, for writing in. I really appreciate you writing and I appreciate you listening. We've got a little bit more time, so I'll go ahead and do one more uh, one more letter from Scott Davis. This one, he's talking about Winnick's first issues. He writes in again, Hi, Sean. I was able to get started on the Winnick run recently, and I'm really looking forward to what he has to offer. I might be hard to it might be hard to transition from the Great Mars run, so we'll see how he does. It was different when Mars took over from Gerard Jones because the issues that led up to Jones's to the end of Jones's run were not very great. In this case, though, Mars was going out on top, so Winnick has his work out, work cut out for him. Here are a few comments on GL 129 through 131 and GL Annual number 9. 129, he says, this was a decent first issue by Winnick about Kyle getting a job at Feast and then being captured by the Manhunters. You and Thomas were hilarious talking about this issue. The cover was funny with all the different characters looking around in different directions. Yeah, that cover was... Now that I know what was going on with that cover and it's setting up storylines that are going to be happening later in the book, it makes a lot more sense. But yeah, initially I was like, why are all these people here and what's Jenny doing in her Victoria's Secret negligee shoot and who's the guy with the big dog in the lower right hand corner? So yeah. Thomas is bumming me out by letting me know that guy gets reverted back to his meathead persona myself as well. I'm definitely a lot looking forward to that. You mentioned you'd like to know where to get a Radu or Warrior coffee mug. Well, I know where to get a Radu mug and I fact, in fact have one myself. Go to Cafe Press website and search for Radu. Thomas provided some very interesting background info about Terry. I'm looking forward to reading his story in future issues. Well, uh, right now we know what's happened with Terry and we're going to get a little more with the character in the next couple issues. So I hope you're enjoying what Winnick's doing with that character. So far, I have been as well. Green Lantern 130 says, The cover was hilarious with the pouting Manhunter and Kyle shooting in the opposite direction of the blast being fired at him. This issue was okay. I've noticed Winnick is a very cinematic with his action scenes and doesn't have much dialogue. Yeah, I think that's going to be pretty par for the course. He's, he's very much of the more modern trope, uh... I don't want to say his storytelling is completely decompressed, but it definitely doesn't have as tight a feel and seems to have a bit more action beats in it than previous episodes or previous issues the story had. 
The Manhunters uh, doing the Lord of the Dance on page six was hilarious, he says. Not a big fan of the torture issues, so the ending sucked when Kyle was being tortured while the Manhunter grabs his ring. Greenland 131, this was a decent conclusion to the Manhunter story arc, although I felt it dragged on a bit. You mentioned that the writing for the trade started around this time, and I definitely think Winnick is bringing it to Green Lantern. He made a great point on page two that it's nice to see that it's a big deal to bring on a one new ring bearer in this era instead of all the rings and the colored lantern corns that we have in the colored lantern cores that we have in the current GL run. I agree with Kyle. I agree with Kyle was very vicious on page eight through 13, killing all the manhunters. It really doesn't seem his style. The page 10 crotch shot of Kyle was hilarious and almost too revealing around that area, if you know what I mean. Yes, uh, there was uh, some good positioning of the uh, Kirby tech around his uh, private parts to make sure that nothing, nothing came out there. I'm with you, he says. I'm also getting nervous about how Winnick is trying to portray Guy. Wow, <laughs> Jenny's boob job looks great on page 21. Yeah, I was... Kind of embarrassed with how uh, the artwork in the book was kind of marginal, except for Jenny, who looked far too good. There was far too de- far too much detail on Jenny on that one page. The Vriel on the last page with Fatality wielding the yellow ring was great. So far, good work for winning. I'm looking forward to more. Then he goes on to Green Lantern Annual number 9, and I agree. he says, I agree with you that this wasn't the greatest annual at all. I wasn't very interested in Sala and the demon Pazuzu in Tunisia. It looks like the poor dude got shot in the face on page 8, which just left her dead, and no one wanted to dispose of the body. Well, he'll just get covered up by sand, I guess. You would think that Kyle would have covered him up or something. No, the sand will do that. On page 25, Kyle is just standing there while Sala gets tortured, so why doesn't he use her ring, his ring to help her? I agree with you. A, the strange coincidence that Kyle was just hanging out in Tunisia, and B, the new Green Lantern symbol on the door to hell, both completely took out of the story. Completely took me out of the story. Sorry, I can read these things. Good call on page 21 about the weird sitcom between the mother and her teenage daughter. The line that Kyle says at the end of the book while he's riding away on a winged camel was hilarious. When I come back, I'm going to bring my friends. Yeah, right, Kyle. We all know you're never coming back. Anyway, thanks, Sean, and have a great week, Scott. Scott, again, it's always great getting emails from you. I love the fact that you're following along with me, and it's always great to hear from you. Thanks again for writing in. Thanks, Hugo, for writing in. And if you guys would like to write in, of course you can do that at just one of the guys podcast at gmail.com. Always, always thankful to have letters from anyone who listens to the show. But with that done, I'm going to close up the email bag and move on to my coverage of Green Lantern number 142. Green Lantern number 142 had a cover date of November 2001 and a release date of September 5th, 2001. The cover price was 225 US and 375 Canada, and the title was House on Fire, Part 2. Writer was Judd Winnick, the penciler this time out was Eric Battle, inkers were Rich Faber and John Lowe, the colors and separations were done by Robert Rowe and Alex Blayert, the letterer was Chris Iliopoulos, the assistant editor was Nashe Castro, and the editor was Bob Shrek. Obviously suffering hallucinations from the pain of having the majority of the skin burned off his back, Green Lantern Kyle Rayner sees himself as a near-omnipotent being, capable of bringing light to darkness 
and life to lifelessness. But in reality, he's just suffering from third-degree burns to his back caused by the trio of flame-wielding fiends who now have set their sights on fellow Green Lantern Jenny Lynn Hayden. Jenny is holding her own against the napalm-spewing narcissist, but Kyle knows that despite her skills, she will need his help. Summoning all of his will, Kyle forces himself to focus on bandaging his wounds when he's approached by a shadowy figure who tells him to let go. He's concentrating too much. Cut to Slabside Maximum Security Prison, where Jon Stewart is paying another visit to Fatality to try to gain closure between the two of them. Fatality says she can tell him why he is unable to get out of his wheelchair and walk again, but first he has to do a little something-something for her. He has to take his clothes off. Telling her to go to hell, John spins around to leave, but Fatality reduces the request to just the shirt and jacket. No touching or inappropriate rubbing. John acquiesces, and Fatality quips about how hunky he is for an invalid. But after an angry exchange, she tells him that the removal of his clothing was to allow her vision for weakness, quote-unquote, to check John out. And the vision tells her that what is causing John's paralysis is not in his spine, but in his mind. Back at the firefight, Jenny is showing the villains her beaver, a giant ring construct beaver, get your minds out of the gutter, while Kyle is getting a pep talk from the Hal Jordan Spectre. The Spirit of Vengeance tells Kyle to heal himself and make himself prepared for something is coming. Taking Kyle's very Obi-Wan Kenobi advice, Kyle does just that as he is bathed in emerald energy. Back in the battle, Jenny decides to encase Red Sonia in an airtight box, effectively dousing her out of existence. Sledge and Slutty Jubilee try to run, but Jenny pops a bubble over Slutty Jubilee's head and has her take her to their leader. Just as things are winding down, Kyle appears, good as new, telling Jen that he healed himself with the ring. The two follow Slutty Jubilee to where the person who was behind this was, and sitting in the fetal position in a trash-strewn alley is Kyle's polar opposite, Effigy. Martin tells the Lanterns that when he escaped the controllers, he had aspects of himself appear, much like what happened to Kyle. But now that he is captured, he just wants to be taken to prison or to an institution where he can get some help. Crisis averted, Jenny asks Kyle to tell him about how he healed himself and how he's feeling. Kyle dodges the question, telling Jenny he's never been so scared in all of his life. This is an interesting tale, as Effigy, who is essentially Kyle's polar opposite in the Green Lantern books, has had a similar experience to what Kyle did in the Circle of Fire storyline. This seems to be leading up to something big, especially with the Spectre coming in and being all cryptic and stuff. Plus, we're getting more seeding of something going on between John and Fatality and his possible psychosomatic injury. Overall, Eric Battle's art is a big step down from either Eagle Sham or Daryl Banks. It's passable, but it definitely has a more 90s feel to it than any recent artist we've had on the book. I will say, although, he does do a good job of drawing the female form on Jenny. Specifically, I'm looking at that uh, awful thing that Eaglesham did at the end of the Wild Rome Burn storyline where he 
was proposing to Jenny and she was on the bed and she looked like she had no internal organs. Uh, That was awful. But yeah, we'll go ahead and take a look at the rest of the book, starting, of course, as we do with the cover. And Eagle Sham is actually doing the cover here. And it's uh, it's perhaps the best art in the book. Uh, However, Jenny still has an impossibly thin waist. I mean, everyone else on the cover looks very good. Even uh, the uh, female characters here look, you know, that aren't Jenny look normal. But for some reason, Jenny has a waist and spine that looks like it bends in ways that it shouldn't. She looks too rubbery. And her her leg, especially her right leg, her, her thigh looks, her upper thigh looks far too long. And yeah, I don't know why I'm focusing specifically on Jenny's body, but it just... Looks really out of place here. Page one, I know all of this is a dream or a vision or whatever it's supposed to be going on in Kyle's mind at the time, since he's suffering from the burns. But we get a kind of redesign for Kyle's uniform, and it really doesn't look very good at all. It looks like he's got baggy, puffy sleeves with sort of Iron Man chest armor nipples on him, and... It's just weird. Uh, I'm not really a fan of battle as an artist here. It's just, it's not a good look. Page two, we get a little line here that says, Kyle might have the ability to bring back a planet with his new power. Hmm. I wonder what planet he could bring back with his immense godlike Green Lantern power. Hmm. Pages four through six, I like the fact that Winnick is allowing Jenny to hold her own against these three villains. Um, He could have easily made Jenny sort of the weak female and had Kyle come in to save her, but he doesn't do that. Plus on page five, Sledge or Torch or whatever his name, I really don't care, looks like he's belching fire a la the Red Lanterns. It's, It's kind of interesting that we see this here and... I'm assuming we've had references earlier in the book to uh, members of the Effigy Corps looking similar to the Red Lantern. So I'm wondering if any of that was taken in the uh, Jeff Johns run was taken from this, uh, especially design aspects of them. Page 8, I really don't get it with what's going on with John in these stupid sting Tom Petty little circle sunglasses that he's wearing. I know it might be a trendy look for the for people at the time, but it really feels out of place for the character of John Stewart. I've never seen him dress like this or look like this, and it just looks really, really weird for the character. So, if this is what Winnick is doing with John, not that much of a fan of it. Moving on to page ten, we get Fatality asking John to disrobe, and ugh, it gets really creepy on these pages especially this panel here with fatality sort of in her very provocative cut up prison uniform looking like she's getting ready to mount john so yeah there's some ickiness going on here but then moving on to page 12 after john takes his shirt off which again is still gratuitous we get that fatality has this quote-unquote power to see people's weaknesses which Sounds like a load of BS to me. However, it does allow the plot of John's injury being psychosomatic to run through it. 
And then I'm looking at the page, and what is that image of chewed bubblegum with eyes in the last panel? Oh, wait. That's Jon Stewart there. <laughs> My bad. I thought it was just some some random chewed bubblegum that the artist had decided to draw. Uh, that the, I'm sorry. That's a, that's a very, very bad depiction of Jon Stewart there. Bad on you, Eric Battle. Page 13, panel 3, Jenny decides to bring up a construct of a giant beaver. So that happened, which was weird, and obviously someone maybe had seen the naked gun recently, so there you go. Page 14 here, Hal seems to be portraying the Phantom Stranger here a little bit more than than the Spectre. Plus his look with all the sort of weird ties or pieces of cloth coming off his cloak. Just, it's it's a weird design. Like I said, I think Battle's art looks a lot more 90s than some of the other artists in here. So yeah, it's kind of a, kind of a throwback to that era and not really a welcomed one either. However, credit where credit's due, I will give some props to the art on page 15, panel 4. It's a nice panel of Kyle healing themselves with the beams of energy looking like they have tiny angels in them, evoking the sort of miracle aspect of Kyle healing himself. So the art is inconsistent, and I think that's the best I could say about it. Page 17, Jenny decides to encase Red Sonia or blaze or again whatever her name is in a ring construct sort of rubik's cube box and that just causes her to pop out of existence which leads to believe or leads one to believe that these could have been created constructs much like what kyle did in the circle of fire storyline and that of course leads to page 20 where we find out that effigy or i guess martin van wick was all behind this so there you go they're seeding up a sort of linkage between Kyle and uh, Martin that their powers are going kind of wonky and things are things are going a little bit beyond their normal power level. So I'm I'm going to be interested to see what happens with this. But then I don't really have any notes until just this sort of minor one on page 22. The final panel on this page shows Ginny and Kyle sitting atop a building which looks like it's the World Trade Center, at least from where it is and the sort of antenna on top of it. And it's just kind of, well, again, it's one of those things that we look at it from the point of view of post 9-11. It's kind of eerie that, you know, less than a week from now, the World Trade Centers won't be there. So just just an observation on my part. Nothing to say one way or the other, but it's just one of those things that you see the World Trade Center and it kind of makes you nostalgic, I guess. So there you go. But overall, a okay issue, sort of hampered by inconsistent and, well, let's face it, just not the best art. I would have rather had Banks or even Eaglesham doing the art here because the cover was... Despite the look of Jenny being off, the cover was perhaps the best art in this book, so, yeah, sad. But hopefully sadness will be mollified by the introduction of some really great ads. Probably not, though. The front inside cover is an advertisement for Toonami, the Cartoon Network uh, block that featured some 
Oh, I can't remember his name, the host of Toonami, but he's this little CGI robot animated guy. And I guess this is a game that you could play on the GameCube that interacted or was sort of tied in with Toonami. It's called Lockdown. Never heard of it. We get the same Aztec or Mayan or Incan sculptures with the uh, rainbow shooting out of it. So we did that. It's for Skittles. Taste the rainbow. Even if you're afraid that the Earth is going to come to an end in 2012, which it didn't. We get Dave Chappelle's uh, doing Right Garment Extreme as well. And remember the last this one last time out where he was being in a headlock by a, a sort of bulky female wrestler. And again, we get the uh, JBC boombox with Nikki Six being all excited about it. The, the ads are kind of similar this time out. Uh, Tang Fruit Frenzy, uh, Capri Sun type pouches, cherries, lemons, and oranges way harmed in the making of this product. Or making of this product, sorry. So uh, innocent fruit was killed to make an orangutan's drink accessible to people. There you go. Then we get an advertisement for the Harry Potter trading card game. Which spell would you use? So I guess if you're not interested in playing Magic the Gathering, you could play Harry Potter the Gathering. And it doesn't look like it's specifically Harry Potter from the films. It looks like more of the characters of Harry Potter that have been drawn into the books. So uh, there you go. If you're playing card games, play it with Harry Potter. That sounds wrong. We got an advertisement for Mario Kart Super Circuit, which I guess is the Game Boy Advanced version of Mario Kart. And you have, it looks like Mario driving a minivan with a couple of buttons that release the various things that you do behind them. We've got a mushroom, a turtle shell, a banana, and a lightning strike. And I guess this was a game that you could actually link up to another person who had a Game Boy Advance. Not via Wi-Fi, but via a looks like very short cord. I guess you two would have to be pretty close to each other to be playing this game. So there you go. After that is another ad for peanut butter and chocolate Twix, peanut butter advisory, unexpected content, delicious. Uh, middle, well, not the quite the middle of the book, has uh, some advertisement for some Game Boy Advance games, Earthworm Jim, Iridian, Pitfall, and Fortress, which I guess is sort of a side-scroller with, Weird-looking knights with big red noses. Oh, dear God, let's hope it's not Patch Adams involved. Oh, Lord. Then the next page is the stained glass window mosaic of tobacco is wacko. If you're a teen, I will be glad when these advertisements are out of my comic. Then we get the uh, advertisement again for other games just don't measure up. It's Cluno or Klonoa, Empire of Dreams. It's it's a Sonic the Hedgehog ripoff, it looks like. No idea. Of course, it came out for the Game Boy Advance, so it couldn't be Sonic because, well... And I just noticed something. This uh, Klonoa character has a Pac-Man baseball cap on, which, of course, he's wearing backwards because that's what all the hip characters do. Next page is an advertisement for OxyClean Shower Gel, which has the bottle of OxyClean with a mallet getting ready to whack a back, which I guess are pimples or bacteria-filled things. 
which probably wouldn't be a good thing to do because it's going to squirt sebum all over the place, which is kind of disgusting if you think about it too much. Then you get an ad of a sort of, well, not really messy dorm room, but I guess a messy room with a bunch of Starburst wrappers on the floor and a trash can near it with the uh, cover copy saying Starburst, 12 chances to improve your aim. So I guess, you know, it's your opportunity to throw your little Starburst wrappers into the trash can. All right. Then you get an ad for, I guess, the Dark Age of Camelot. I guess, uh, yes, this is a, one of the first advertisements I've seen for a massively multiplayer online role-playing game. I know I've heard about this. Unfortunately, I never played this. This is long before World of Warcraft, but I think this is one of the one of the first, of, you know, maybe EverQuest was prior to this, but one of the first ones that I've seen in uh, advertising this comic for a ma- massively multiplayer online game. It's got your generic knight with his shield with a dragon on it holding up his longsword and the cover copy saying Albion under siege. So I guess they're worried about some sort of drug manufacturer. I don't know. And then if, of course, cigarette smoking ads weren't bad enough, we get sniffing can harm your nervous system. Convulsions aside, it's not that bad, which I guess is a anti-huffing. Lord, an anti-huffing ad. So, yeah, don't huff paint, kids, and don't smoke. But you can do it when you're an adult. Why not? I guess people got more concerned about kids using drugs in these comics. We get the uh, Corn Nuts ad with the Rebel Corn Nut characters riding on their motorcycles, a la Easy Rider. We've seen that before. Nothing really interesting. Tales of Destiny, we've got a couple of big-eyed anime characters with orange and green hair doing anime-type stuff with swords. It's a game for the PlayStation. Um, Anime games? I don't know. I was never into anime. Back inside cover is Pouchimus Maximus, an advertisement for Capri Sun. So we also had Capri Sun in here along to, to go along with the... What was it? The Tang... Eh, whatever. Then the back outside cover is another ad that has uh, beavers on it. Uh, I guess it's tanks armed with signs that say Go Beavers, and it's for Advance Wars, another Game Boy game, or a Game Boy Advance game in color, and I guess you play a military person who blows up cheerleaders? Sure, why not? Okay, thanks ads. We appreciate it. But we're going to move on to our next book, which is Green Lantern, Dragon Lord, number three. But first, we're going to play some promos. So listen to these. Hey, Michael. Hey, Dad. We need to record another new trailer. Another one? Yes. You know that we read comics and then talk about comics, because as we've established, talking about comics you've not read is just dumb. Yeah, and you make me do it every Thursday. Well, we've moved. Have we? Yes, we have outgrown our old location. I don't feel like I've moved. And we have now moved to twotruefreaks.com. What was that again? Twotruefreaks.com. A-Kids Comics, still every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com. In Country has re-upped for another tour and we've been reassigned. Now you can find this complete look at Marvel Comics The Nom on the Two True Freaks Network. 
So join me, Tom Panneries, for In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics The Nom, every two weeks at twotruefreaks.com. And we are back. So let's go ahead and head on into issue three of Green Lantern Dragon Lord. This one was cover dated 2001 with a release date of June 20th, 2001, a cover price of $4.95 US and $8.25 Canada. The title was Book Three Redemption of Blood, and the writer was Doug Mench. The penciler was Paul Galassi, inker was Joseph Rubenstein, letterer Bob Lappin, colorist James Sinclair. Separations were by Digital Chameleon. The editors were Andy Helfer and Mike Carlin. Parking his skiff at the dockside entrance to Lung Mountain, Green Lantern and Dragon Disciple Zhong Li prepares to rid the former temple of the Dragon Lords of the evil that resides within. This, of course, involves beating the ass of every rogue, slaver, and assassin in the temple, while also freeing the captives held within. A quick scene with the Emperor questioning General Shin about the progress in capturing Zhang Li, and we're back to the kung fu fighting with kicks as fast as lightning between Zhang and the villains. Taking the last of them out by blowing up the stored gunpowder in the mountain, Zhang makes it to the summit and summons the Dragon Lords to return to their cleansed temple. As a reward, the dragons bathe Zhongli in fire, which seems kind of antithetical for a reward for clearing out their temple, but the fire is a symbolic one, which sanctifies Zhongli, letting him know that he is now worthy. And with that, his ring creates a construct of his dead master who tells him that he was always worthy. Okay. Jade Moon knew this, and that's why she recharged his ring last night. But with the day over and the charge fading away, Zhongli decides to wait until next morning to face the greater evil of the Emperor himself. In the Han village the next morning, Jade Moon is awoken by sounds of dozens of hoofbeats outside her window. Peering out, she sees an army of the Emperor's men heading towards Long Mountain. Realizing that Zhongli is powerless, Jade Moon takes a shortcut to try and reach the mountain before the cavalry and to deliver the lantern to the hero. But before she can make it to the Ronin Ringwielder, Jade Moon is struck down by a volley of arrows fired by the Emperor's army. Retrieving a lantern from beside her fallen body, Zhongli charges the Flint Ring and delivers some Far East consequences, copyright Allen and Emily Middleton, 2014, all rights reserved, to the Hunan Horde. Dispatching the forces, Zhongli flies the injured Jade Moon back to the Han village for treatment and rallies the available villagers to help him storm the palace. Along with Zhang Li, the villagers deliver some Mandarin McFeitenstein to the one percenters living in the temple. While the rioting goes on in the courtyard, Emperor Multiple Chin is dispatched by an enraged General Shan. But the murder of the Emperor doesn't redeem Shan in Zhang Li's eyes as he takes off the ring and prepares to fight the warrior man to man. Summoning the strength of his love for Jade Moon, Zhang Li takes Shan down, then engages the rampaging citizenry. And out of the masses of angry peasants comes a small child, Jade Moon's son, who Zhang Li proclaims will be the new, just, and compassionate emperor. And as the crowd cheers for their compassionate leader, Zhang Li flies back to the village only to find that Jade Moon is near her end. Zhang Li tells her that her son has taken the throne and is welcomed as a humble and fair leader. Knowing her moments are few, Jade Moon asks to be taken to the place where their love began. And there she tells Zhang Li to continue to be a hero to all of the people, the world's last dragon. 
After breathing her last breath, Zhongli sends her off all Anakin Skywalker style in Return of the Jedi, then walks away from the pyre as a dragonlord and a green lantern. This was a nice, if predictable, ending to the book. I figured that the child would show up at the end to become the new emperor, but I wasn't certain if Jade Moon would have died at the end. However, looking back on uh, what recently came out, well, it wasn't recently, it may have been recent to the time, the movie Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, uh, at the end of that, the fate of the fem- one of the female characters isn't as positive either, so it might not be uncommon on tales like this for the female lead to die. The art, again, is very clean and detailed, but the, a lot of the plot is just fighting. This story could have easily been reduced to maybe one 80-page giant and left out a lot of the swordplay padding. But overall, it wasn't a bad series. I'm, I'm glad I included it in the storyline, and I'm glad I got a chance to read it. Looking at the book, we'll go ahead and start with the cover. I don't think I mentioned it, but the logo here was designed by Todd Klein, and it's a rather simple yet elaborate logo at the same time. Uh, Designing appropriate logos is often a difficult task, and to give you an example of some of these, I really suggest that you go head over to greatcrypton.com and check out one of the recent posts that that Michael did on uh, Rain Hughes' logo designs for the Tangent comic books. It's some really interesting stuff, uh, trying to come up with a logo that depicts what's going on in the story that is also unique and eye-catching as well. Page 10, the Chinese were known to have used gunpowder at these times uh, for explosions or fireworks and stuff like that, so historically it works for them to have gunpowder stored in this mountain, which allows Zhongli to get this explosion to go off, so it, it works here. Page 16, I have to say, thank goodness it was that the uh, dragon fire was only symbolic, or this story probably would have been a lot shorter as uh, Zhongli gets bathed in dragon flames. So, yeah. Ooh, spicy General Sao Zhongli there. Page 28, there are still some multiple chapters in this book, but a lot of them aren't at the top of the page uh, like they were here. In fact, the multiple chapters in this book were... They weren't as apparent as they were in other books, because a lot of the time it, they didn't come at the beginning of a page. They would often come in in the middle panel of a page. And again, some of the chapters were almost a couple of panels long, so it's an interesting storytelling device here. Page 31, panel 4. This is a thing that always bugs me in comics or TV or movies or anything. When someone gets shot with an arrow, especially in the chest or in the back, and they decide to pull the arrow out, that is a horrible, horrible idea in reality. Because first of all, you're going to be damaging the tissue that's pulling them out, and it looks from the looks of it, these arrows were arrowheads with the sort of uh, curved ends at the back, so when you pull it out, you're tearing the tissue even more than it went in, because it went in a, at a point. Uh, so that's bad. Plus, if it actually went into her lungs, now you've caused a pleurism in her lungs, and now fluid's going to be seeping into her lungs and causing essentially her to drown in her own bodily fluids. So if you ever, and, and not that I'm saying this is ever going to happen to anyone, but if you ever get an arrow to your chest or whatever, 
leave it in and let someone who's professional be able to take it out, you're probably going to cause more damage if you do it yourself. Page 33, this is kind of icky, and it just goes to show what kind of a despicable character the big old fat emperor is. He just pulled a beetle out of his dumplings and ate it. I don't know why this is here. Is this to show that he's a despicable person? Is is this authentic Chinese cuisine? It doesn't matter. It's icky. Blech. Pages 38 and 39. I will admit, however, even though the fight sequences feel a bit like padding throughout the story, it does give us some good onomatopoeia throughout the uh, tale with the swords clashing together with a katang, sking, fatanked. You know, Zhongli gets kicked in the stomach with a chuft and there is blash and crutch. It's, it's good onomatopoeia here setting up the, uh, setting up the fight. It's just the fact that the fight seems like padding, which is kind of a negative aspect to it. Then on page 44, of course, we get, hey, hey, it's the little kid that I ignored in the first issue that was actually really important to the ending of the story, and he's back to become the emperor. Wow, who didn't see that one coming? Eh, it's just me being snarky, but yeah, I kind of figured that the kid would be emperor by the end of the book, so there you go. Page 47, uh, hey, you know, Zhongli, remember where we first did it? Hey, why don't you take me there so I can die and make that memory for you really, really awkward, okay? Thanks. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Jade Boone. I'd love to take you to the place where we first made out for the first time so you can die there. Uh, that's just... Maybe it's, again, maybe it's a Asian thing. You know, die where you uh, first boinked. There you go. Page 48, however, uh, you gotta imagine Zhang Li needs to stick around because that funeral pyre that he started didn't look like it was all that contained, and it looks like there's a lot of forest around here, and it's a pretty big-sized fire, so he might have just, he might have, you know, Smokey the Bear is basically not going to be very pleased with him. Maybe they've got a panda version of him, like Smokey the Panda, you never know. But yeah, like I said, a decent bunch of issues, uh, an interesting story, somewhat padded, but a really good art by Paul Glacey, so I would definitely recommend you go out and check it out. However, that does it for the books this time, and next time out, we would be covering Green Lantern number 143, but unfortunately, I'm going to take a little break. Not that I'm not going to be covering comics, I'm going to be covering comics that deal with Green Lantern, but I'm going to be covering something that was suggested by my guest host. That's going to be Green Lantern number 30, or not Green Lantern number 37 and 38, but Legends of the DC Universe number 37 and 38, which deals with Green Lantern taking on a character named Traitor. Yes, Traitor. Couldn't have come up with a better name, could they? But we'll be here next time with a special guest, uh, someone I've podcasted with before. Who's that special guest? Well, you'll just have to come back in seven days to find out now. And I hope you will come back for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. Bye, everyone. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. 
This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books could be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scan the covers, and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys Podcast, and you can subscribe to the show there. You can search for me on Facebook as well, and now you can find me there, as it was a requirement of my new Demonza Core contract. But it doesn't mean that I'll be joining the little Candy Crush group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and cut back next Friday to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greenland. The opening music for today's show was I Like Chinese, off of Monty Python's Contractual Obligation album. Of course, if you are a nerd, like me, and you're listening to this podcast, you probably know a ton of Monty Python songs. This is one of their better ones and one of their better albums. And I suggest you go get it, the song or the album. And I suggest that you go get it through the link at 2TrueFreaks.com. The link to 2TrueFreaks.com will take you to Amazon.com, where you can buy the album, buy the CD, or buy the MP3 download. Plus, you can buy it at a reasonable price, and whenever you buy it through the link at 2TrueFreaks.com, a little bit of your purchase price comes back to the website. It won't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the website out. So, if you're ever wanting to get Monty Python fun... Be sure you get it through the link at 2TrueFreaks.com.